podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. My name is Mike Asbeck. I'm here, as always, with John McDonald. We are a healthcare podcast that focuses on career development, non-clinical careers, and burnout prevention. We've got a really exciting show today before I even say hello to John, because we have a guest and we are starting to venture into the world of in-person recording. So video may not be what we want it to be, and we'll continue to work on that for anyone that, you know, the three people that watch us on YouTube. But Mora is here, and Mora is a PA student that's actually rotating with me and had a lot of interest in doing a research project on a really cool topic, which I'll let her introduce. So, John, hello, welcome, and hello, Mora. Hi, guys. So, for my research project, I was really interested in healthcare providers that are struggling with not just burnout, but actual mental health conditions and how to identify mental health conditions versus burnout and what to do from there. So I love that we're going to do this topic because more actually, we were looking for a research topic to do. Generally, when students come through my office, we like to have them do some sort of research focused topic. And she wanted to do burnout slash depression. And I think you kind of came up with this topic without even realizing that John really has a passion for this. So I think it fits perfectly. And I'm excited for the topic, John, because we've talked about burnout. And we've talked about the difference between stress and burnout, but we haven't yet really dug into what we should do as healthcare professionals if burnout progresses to a mental health concern, such as depression, anxiety, where it becomes more than just dissatisfaction. I think it's interesting, too, because when we talk about mental health and depression, I mean, especially depression, uh, we will treat depression, depressive episodes probably like a loss of a loved one, you know, even with an SSRI for six months or so, depending on what's going on. Uh, So when we have a loss of something in our life, I mean, it really could be ideology behind our careers or what we planned to have happen and it didn't come to fruition. It really can go into a mental crisis or um, not just burnout, but progressing into an actual physiological, not just ideological issue. So before we dive into maybe the differences between burnout and depression, because I think that's a good option or a good topic, I'd love to first get your thoughts as the the experts in the room, as Maura has now done a lot of research on the topic. And John, this is certainly an area of interest for you. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts about why seeking mental health care may be so difficult, why there may be so much stigma associated with the healthcare profession and mental health. So Maura, let me turn it to you. What are your thoughts on that? Why do you think it's tough for a healthcare professional to A, recognize that they're maybe struggling, but then also B, seek help? I think there's a lot of stigma just around mental health in general. So as a healthcare provider or as a regular individual that is has no career in healthcare, there's three types of stigma that I was kind of doing my research into. There's public stigma, so the one 
the stigma around you, the society that you're in, the norms around mental health. And then also looking at self-stigma. So looking at yourself as a healthcare provider, thinking that you can overcome a mental health condition or burnout for yourself. And then there's also institutional stigma. So working in a private practice or working in the hospital, the stigma that your peers or colleagues might have towards you. Yeah, I, I do. I agree with you. It's different with mental health because when people go out on disability for an injury, everybody's had some type of injury before. So say somebody has even heel spurs and they got to go in and get that taken out and they have to be out for a few weeks. Everybody's, you know, I've broken something before. Yeah, I can't work on that thing. But with mental health, it's different because if somebody's not struggling with it or never has, uh, not only do you have your personal, like you were mentioning, the the personal struggle where you're saying, I can white knuckle this and get over it. You also have your colleagues who you can assume don't understand what's happening in your life because it's not like a physical injury that you can see and wince and you see the pain in somebody. It's just like if they haven't gone through it, they're not going to have any idea of what you're going through. So that can be isolating in of itself. So I'd like to actually maybe talk a little bit more about institutional stigma because you mentioned it, but maybe explain what you mean because I think sometimes listeners may not understand personal stigma, even social stigma versus an employer-based stigma for seeking mental health care. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So kind of like John mentioned before, it's the colleagues and your employers, maybe not seeing a physical condition or physically something wrong with you. It's more of a mental and if they've never experienced it, it's hard to understand and see where colleagues are coming from. So reaching out to a mental health care provider or trying to talk to your colleagues can be hard, especially if they don't have that understanding of a mental health condition in any degree. So a lot of that has to do with will they necessarily, I know I'm a Gen Z, but like judge me or come like think of me differently as a healthcare provider if I come to them with a mental health condition that they might not understand to an extent. Um, I think at this point, telehealth is a great resource for all healthcare providers that maybe don't want to go into the office to physically see other colleagues that they might refer patients to or consult patients with because they don't want their name involved because of the stigma around mental health and coming into an office that people might recognize them. It's, that's interesting. I've seen a lot of these ads recently for HIMSS, uh, for mental health, specifically for men, right, HIMSS, because of the stigma. And I know we're not really necessarily talking about institutional at, at that point, but there is the stigma where people don't want to go get help because they're not quite sure how people are going to perceive them. So I love the idea of telehealth for that, at least even as an introduction to get somebody comfortable with talking to a healthcare provider about their mental health state. Uh, But secondly, something I want to respond to what you said for your employers and colleagues not necessarily recognizing that it's, it's not just this mental thing. It's actually a physical thing too. And Mike, we could talk for days on end about stigma but disability and fmla like these are the reasons why the government instituted these 
these safeguards for us because if we don't have the safeguard of a disability or FMLA, we are worried that it's going to impact our job, our relationships with our colleagues or our boss, but it's it's federally protected because of this because we don't recognize it. They had to put that in place because employers were weren't treating their employees well enough in the mental in, in the mental health area. Uh, people were getting fired. Um, people were going on long term, not only say disability, but hiatuses and not being able to make any money. Like they had to institute this because we just don't recognize mental health as being a true disorder among at, at large. Rather, I think you're both on to something really important here because in healthcare, we spend our entire careers helping others or being patient focused, and I think there's a stigma of kind of raising your hand and saying, "Hey, I need help." whether that be, you know, nurses raising their hand and saying this is an unfair staffing ratio. We talked about this last week, even just with the strike, that nurses are maybe looked down upon, certainly by healthcare administration, but even by other colleagues, if they say this is not healthy, this is not good for patient outcomes. But if someone stands up and says, I'm struggling, whether it be, you know, low back pain or mental health, that it's seen as you just not being able to cut it. And I think there's such a culture issue there within healthcare because other fields have done a better job outside of healthcare. I think there's been more, you know, progressive attitudes, not just towards mental health, but even just general workplace wellness. If you look at the tech companies that have, you know, pool tables and ping pong tables at the, at the job or free beer at lunch, which maybe you can't do because I don't want surgeons drinking beer and then going and doing surgery. But I think there's a, a greater awareness of the need to make sure that employees are healthy and happy. And in healthcare, there still seems to be this incredible stigma and culture that if you are raising your hand and saying you need help, it means you're weak. I think it's interesting because that kind of goes along with substance abuse disorders, where we now we have safeguards as well for those who are self-reporting to say that I have an issue, is your license is protected. You can get uh, a lot of times free help. And sometimes even get it paid for it going into some sort of inpatient or outpatient programs and have a pathway back into uh, your practice. Because again, just as I said before, that stigma will stop people from getting health. And then the, the detriment is like you're probably going to lose your job, uh, maybe even your family if you're not getting, getting help. So there's a lot to lose here. So these great safeguards are available, which again is different from burnout. And I know that we're going to get to that point, uh, but for those of you who are listening and you have depression, anxiety, OCD, I know that you sometimes struggle in the workplace because your your colleagues will say things like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so OCD, or I'm having an ADHD moment, or it, if they don't actually have that, uh, that disorder or disease state, it's, you're thinking, you shouldn't be saying that stuff. It's not... It's not appropriate. You make makes you feel as though uh, it's belittling what you struggle with on a daily basis because we just throw these things into the air like OCD or this is crazy or uh, that person is out of their mind or they're they're crazy. It's like it, it can be a struggle when you're dealing with it and the other folks around you have never dealt with it. Something to add to that is I think social media is playing a huge role and impact on the it's okay culturally to say that person's nuts or 
I have OCD or I don't know. I've seen TikToks of them listing two out of nine symptoms of depression. And it's like if you have one of these symptoms, like you are depressed and you can seek help through this. And it's not actually seeing like a behavioral health specialist or someone in that field. And for a lot of people reading the comments, it's like, oh, I've experienced this. I've had this. Does this mean I have this? And it turns into a big Google search of I have all these conditions when to the people and especially healthcare providers that actually have those conditions, it kind of makes them want to take a step back and say, oh, maybe I don't have that because everyone else has it, you know? That's a great point. And I think it ties into maybe the discussion of burnout versus mental health. But yeah, it is interesting that in in today's era and social media is definitely making it worse that I think it's almost trendy to talk about your mental health or talk about neurodivergence. And I think that's good because it can help reduce stigma. But at the same time, if everybody is saying, oh, I'm depressed, oh, I have PTSD, I have trauma it does make it maybe a little bit harder for people that are struggling with a true clinical illness um, to say, well, maybe I need to seek help as opposed to, well, everyone else is going through the same thing. Why can't I handle it if everyone else can? So that's a great point. I never even thought about that perspective because I've generally thought about mental health TikTok or you know social media as being a net positive because it's helping maybe normalize these conversations. It's helping reduce stigma, but certainly it can have a, an alternate side as well where it maybe reduces people's ability to come forward because they feel like everyone else is handling it, but they can't. Yeah, it waters it down. John Amora, I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe we'll let uh, Mora go first because she did all the research on this, but let's talk about the differences between burnout versus mental health. Because I think so often, even as we're talking about social media, we conflate the terms, we conflate stress, we conflate burnout, and we conflate depression together. And they're very distinct, and they have different prescriptions or different treatments of how we would address them or solve the problem. So maybe walk me through that. During my research, I looked at the World Health Organization, and I was kind of looking at the International Classification of Diseases, which is um, a manual that kind of lists all the conditions and diseases that healthcare providers can see and diagnose. Um, when I looked up burnout, it was under occupational phenomena. Burnout is related to your occupation. And then again, looking at the Maslach burnout inventory, talking about emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment that isn't there or reduced personal accomplishment where depression is a clinical diagnosis in this book, and it has set symptoms and timelines that clinicians have to follow in order to diagnose, where burnout is kind of those three um, dimensions working together for a clinician. Yeah. When I did that research as well with the WHO um, and the ICD-10 codes, it's it's available to be billed, but nobody's billing for that type of service or uh, there's not really a good guideline of how to do how to treat for uh, burnout because again, it's not fully accepted yet in the medical community as a diagnosable treatable disorder. So yeah, I, I second that. And these ICD-10 codes, I'm looking forward for this to be billable because a lot of people struggle with this and aren't getting the help because maybe they can't afford it and there's really no pa great pathway for treatment of burnout. 
So let me let me jump in here as the the mental health clinician on the podcast because I I really do think that it's important with all mental health diagnoses. If you go through the DSM, which is our Bible, every single mental health diagnosis requires significant psychosocial or occupational dysfunction as part of the diagnosis. So one of the key or kind of the simpler ways that we can think about burnout versus stress versus depression is that I think of stress as being a a state where you've got a lot going on, you're having some sort of reaction to it, some sort of emotional difficulty, but you're still able to power through and you still may enjoy what you're doing. You know, if you have a very stressful day at work, maybe as a surgeon, we'll use that as an example, you have several cases that go poorly. You're at work much later than you wanted to be. You miss a family event because you're stuck in the OR. That's a stressful day, but you still may enjoy what you do. It may still not um, be something that you're happy about, but overall, you're not feeling, you know, dissatisfied with your overall career. I think burnout comes in where you start to lose that feeling of purpose, where you feel like, you know, the you've lost agency within your job, where you feel like you have no control. And there's maybe almost a little bit, John, you've talked about in the past of like a dissociation that can occur with burnout, where you feel like disconnected from your job. You feel like it, it's meaningless or nothing that you do matters. And that I think is kind of an evolution from chronic stress. If we have stress that's occurring in small periods of time, we can probably handle it pretty well. But if stress continues, every single day is stressful. If you're in the ER as a trauma clinician and every single day you've got trauma, but then also you're having staffing issues, so you're getting mandated to stay over, eventually that's going to lead to burnout. We're going to start to feel maybe completely disenchanted from the job. Depression, I would put as one step higher, where you start to see that functional impact is where if you're depressed, you know, from a clinician standpoint, where I start getting concerned, if those feelings of burnout or those feelings of stress are then leading to sadness, hopelessness, despair, anhedonia, meaning a lack of pleasure or interest in activities, but then that's leading to a functional loss. You're calling into work, you're isolating, you're not going out with family and friends, you're, you're no longer doing activities that you used to enjoy, where the hope would be that with burnout, you know, if you're burned out of your job, that may absolutely have a personal impact. You may come home from work and have no interest to go to your family's house for dinner. You know, I don't want to see my parents. I just want to veg out. I had a hard day. But if you still kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and get to your families, get to your parents' house, the hope is that you would still enjoy it. Where I think when depression starts to set in, even if you go to your parents' house for dinner, it doesn't bring you any joy. You've lost that ability to experience joy or have happiness in activities that you like. So maybe that's a a little bit of a convoluted example, but I guess the simple thing that I would look at is I think when you start to see burnout maybe leading to a functional impairment, that's where the red flags are going off for me as a clinician, where I would want that person to be raising their hand and saying, hey, I need help. When it's persistent too. Right. Uh, Because situational versus persistent, uh, we talked about disassociation. One of the key things that that really hit me hard when I was doing my research was when you no longer view your patients as humans or or individuals who need treatment or having any sort of compassion towards them and just seeing them as a number, that is a huge sign that you're becoming burned out because you went into this wanting to help individuals and now you don't even, you just see them as a product to be fixed uh, or even 
worse, maybe a problem that you just have to deal with. You're coming into work getting paid because you have to deal with this problem, which is your patient. Uh, once that occurs, you really should take a step back because it can lead to other problems. We, we talk about PTSD um, being post-traumatic stress, like consistent stress we see in the battlefield will turn into a uh, potentially lifelong disorder that necessarily has to be managed and might not ever go away really. So we know that persistent environmental stress can cause disorders. So I do want to delineate though with burnout because burnout occurs when you have that stress available. Uh, but on the other side of the seesaw, there's not that support system. That's when burnout occurs. If you have a lack of support, burnout thrives. So maybe we can transition to talk about what that looks like, what a lack of support might look like and maybe how we can find better support. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point because obviously in healthcare, we have stressful jobs. You know, if you're working in a trauma one facility, you're going to have lots of stress and not everyone that works in stressful jobs gets burned out. And I think, John, you hit the nail on the head that support is really the key, having boundaries, having good balance. So, Maura, I know you did a lot of research on this. So, great transition. Why don't we talk about what we can do to help maybe combat or reduce the risk of depression from an occupational standpoint? Because I know we're kind of talking today just about depression as an extension of burnout. So, Maura, I know you've done a lot of research on different things that we can do to maybe help reduce the risk of burnout becoming depression. Obviously, there's a broader discussion about clinician mental health that is not just an extension of burnout. But as we've been talking about burnout versus stress versus depression, what are some things that we maybe can implement in our own lives that can help reduce the risk of this developing into a mental health concern? Yeah. So for one, I was looking into finding pathways in healthcare that provide you as an individual with gratification. Because as a student going through my clinical rotations right now, I know that some specialties and some fields may not be for me and they may not fill me with joy and I may be like, wow, I don't want to go back tomorrow. But at the same time, that is good experience as a student. I'll say that it's good experience to have those. But I don't want to pick a career that I know going into it, I, this will not um, gratify me or this will not fill me up with what I need for my day. Along with that, I think having good family support, good social support is helpful during my journey into healthcare, going home and being able to kind of regress my day with my parents or even my colleagues that are going through the same transition as I am. That is always helpful just to know that I am not the only one going through what I'm going through. And then talking to the employees at Mike's office in behavioral health, a lot of them said talking to colleagues is very important, supporting the colleagues because they are the only individuals that know what type of patients you're seeing and emotions that go into behavioral health and seeing those patients. Excellent. John, any thoughts on things that we can do to reduce the risk of maybe burnout converting to depression? You talked about isolating a lot. I think getting around other individuals who are like-minded, uh, who you who really fill you up when you get around them. Because we 
I don't, I'm sure some people listening or maybe you guys have heard about um, uh, the bucket theory or, you know, how full, what's, how full is my bucket or how full is your bucket? There's this idea where you are either filling others' buckets or you're taking from their, their bucket. And so you want to find people who fill your bucket up, who really make you feel like, wow, I, I relaxed or I enjoyed my time or I was challenged in this area that made me feel good. Don't isolate, get around other people. I, when you guys were just last talking, I, I was thinking about single parents, single fathers or single mothers who they, they work all day, then they come home and they take care of the children all night. Um, and if they don't have a second income, they might have to do some more work after the kids go to bed. It's just like consistent work nonstop. And it might not feel like they, there really is an out, but getting around others who have been in the same situation or are in the same situation, there is that nice, uh, that nice feeling you get when you can just vent to other people who understand and that in itself can be healing. Um, but not isolate. I think that's my number one tip for anybody is when you're starting to feel burned out, uh, looking at the symptoms that we were just discussing, get around other people who fill you up. And if you're an introvert, you know who those people are. You still have those people, but just don't isolate. Talk to other people who are going through the same thing so you can realize, okay, I can confide in these people and B, they might actually have some sort of um, ideas as to what's helped them that can help me as well. So John, I'm going to kick this one to you because I think this is maybe a little bit more of, you know, professional structure, HR versus, you know, union rep, things like that. Let's hypothetically say that there's someone listening to this and they feel depressed. They feel like, you know, their mental health is declining and they're not sure what the next step should be. So they've, they've tried to reduce isolation. They've tried to, you know, do more of the self-care, have better work-life balance. They've tried to reduce burnout, but depression is still there. It's still persistent. So we're at the point that professional help is needed. What do you see as those next steps for that clinician? So I think more, I mean, you made a great point with your research that there are these online therapies or online physicians that you can talk to. So next step is finding a professional. I mean, that's, I think the obvious answer, but how to go about doing that, you just have to find what's comfortable for you. And that might even I mean, Mike, how many times have I talked to you as a friend and colleague about things going on here at the house saying, okay, this is what's going on. What do you think? Because you're a safe person for me and I might not have felt comfortable talking to my doctor at that point. Um, But I've had to talk to my doctor about things that I wasn't comfortable with. So once I got to that point where I talked about it enough with somebody where I could relay that effectively to my provider and not, like you said, where it's you don't want to feel like an idiot going and saying like, oh, I, I should know this stuff. I should be able to white knuckle this. So to find somebody in that space who can actually assist you might be your provider. But I'm going to go one step further and say, maybe you do have a diagnosis. Uh, this has already been established. It's something you're already dealing with. To find additional professional help, there's EAP programs at your work. Most likely, if you're especially a part of a healthcare facility, uh, they hopefully will be valuing that as well. And so EAP would be available. There's FMLA. If you need some time away, maybe you're taking care of your parent who has cancer or is elderly 
well, you can take FMLA for that because that might be contributing to your burnout. Then there's disability as well. Maybe you need to work with your your physician, uh, your psychiatrist, a GP, anybody who can pull you out saying, this is becoming too much for you. You've gotten talked to about coming late to work. You've been talked to about you snapping at other colleagues. You have conversation notes on your file now. There could be stuff happening at work that'd be a result of burnout or depression or, or anxiety, OCD, PTSD, any of these things that could be exacerbated. So talk to your HR rep and see what help is available. So to wrap that all up into a nice little package, make sure you're finding somebody who you can confide in, uh, who's in the healthcare field, professional or not. And then secondly, if you need the additional help, uh, you might just need to get out of work for a little bit and work with your family and your provider on what the most effective treatment is for you. Yeah, I think to extend on that, I think telehealth is wonderful. I think the the post-COVID era where we have so much accessibility through the internet to see a provider that's not in our healthcare community. I, I As someone who works in mental health, I can tell you that when I see other healthcare providers, man, it is hard. They're always super nervous when they come in because it's a small community. You know, everyone knows everyone. And it can be awkward if you're coming in to see someone and talk about something intimate like mental health. And it's also someone that you're going to then see in the hospital next week, or you're going to be referring patients back and forth. That can be really tough. So I think telehealth does offer an opportunity to maybe reduce that that stigma or maybe feel more comfortable seeking help. But at, John, as you said, I would also want to make sure that we're beating the drum that Telehealth is not the only option here that talking to your HR rep, you know, making sure that you are indeed raising your hand at work and saying, hey, this is what's going on. I need help. Because I think so often, and I see this on the clinical side where I'm treating people or talking to people so often, there is just so much uh, buildup, you know, in your head, thinking that it's going to be scary, thinking that people are going to judge you. But when you actually make that brave step and walk out and say, hey, this is what's going on. Can you help me? Very often, there's this incredible sense of relief that comes from it because they're willing to help. They're there because they care about you. They're not there to judge you and they can help put you in the right direction, get you with the right people. So very often, I think we build it up in our head because maybe of healthcare culture as something that's super scary, but even seeing someone in person, even if it is someone that is you know, somewhat ancillary in your healthcare network, I still think that there can be a lot of value. So don't think that if you're struggling, you can only go the telehealth route. There's a lot of resources and options. And I can promise you as a mental health clinician, we are not judging. We see our colleagues and our coworkers all the time, not people that we directly work with, but, you know, people that are in our orbit and, you know, mental health affects everyone. So it doesn't discriminate. And we know that, and we're certainly not, you know, on our end, after a healthcare professional leaves our office, you know, then snickering, oh my gosh, I can't believe that doctor doesn't know what they're doing or, you know, that's never happening. So reaching out, I think taking that really scary step of just saying, I need help in whether that be talking to family, um, talking to your primary care, or even someone at work, you know, in HR, I think that's a really important thing because that's hard. And uh, I never want to minimize the amount of effort or bravery it takes to to initiate that conversation because a lot of times that's the first step, but that's also the hardest step. Don't be harder on yourself than you are with other people. Treat yourself, talk to yourself the same way you would treat others because in reality, that's how they're all viewing you. And 
if they aren't viewing you in that way with compassion, uh, forget them, as CeeLo said. All right. So I want to wrap up then. This discussion has been great, and I, I'm hoping that it's thought-provoking for people, not only if you may be struggling with something in your own life, but we know that mental health affects 40% of the people that live in the U.S., so it's a high likelihood that even if it's not affecting you, it's affecting someone you know. So I'm hoping that this is thought-provoking. Maybe it helps you reflect on your own life or reflect on your own circles and identify different ways that you can be more mindful or more helpful for those around you. But more, I want to wrap up by maybe talking about some self-help resources that you found. And for listeners, Maura made up a really nice handout that we'll post on all of our socials and we'll post it on our website that gives some of these resources. But she did a great job of putting together some different things that can be available for people that may be looking to you know, enrich their own lives from a mental health perspective. So why don't you walk me through what you found with that? Yeah, so I found a couple apps just for mindfulness and well-being overall. These are self-driven apps, so you don't necessarily need to schedule a telehealth visit with someone or see a provider. These are things that you can do easily on your phone every day to kind of track where you are in your mental health and on your mental health journey. So there's the app Calm, CBTI Coach. Happify and Headspace. They have free options as well as additional features. And they kind of practice meditation. They practice cognitive behavioral therapy. There's even some um, games and activities that you can do to kind of relieve that stress that you might be feeling or building up, as well as specific um, problem-related activities that you can do on Headspace that kind of sets it up for your own goals and your own personal health goals, which I found to be very helpful and interesting. And like they said, they'll be all linked um, on their webpage. And then at the bottom, I also included some resources and links for if maybe you're that healthcare provider out there wondering if this is burnout or is this something more. So those resources at the bottom can really help you and they can find confidential healthcare providers in your location if you are too afraid to reach out to a colleague or someone that you may work with. And I'd like to just interject that I think these self-help apps, they're wonderful, they're great, but I don't think they should replace professional care. So if you're in a position where you think you are having a significant functional impact because of depression, anxiety, OCD, the next step shouldn't be to download an app and try and just white knuckle it, as you said, John. But I think what the great thing is, is as technology continues to advance and AI is providing maybe even more opportunities to have these apps be more responsive and adaptive to individual needs, is that the threshold for seeking those external helps, those extra things that maybe help you if you're struggling, there's really a a low barrier to entry because these apps are free or have free versions at least. So even if you're having some uncertainty of, uh, you know, I don't feel depressed, but I'm maybe not doing as well as I think, that's, I think, the place where these apps can really be helpful is initiating in more introspection or more self-help earlier on in the process before it gets to the point that it's, oh my gosh, I can't work, I need a leave of absence, or I'm having incredible strain with my family because I'm self-isolating and I'm, you know, biting at them every time I come home because I'm having bad days. Those apps are maybe something that can be implemented upstream 
and more of a preventive function to to help maintain or promote positive mental health before it becomes you know a big concern where we have to implement pharmacologic intervention or therapy and a higher level of higher level of care. Yeah, I would say synergistically mm-hmm. uh, more so because I use I use the Calm app every single day, and I used Headspace in the past. Learning how to breathe effectively for anxiety or even panic situations, meditation, uh, master classes. There's so many. Even I use BetterHelp uh, for therapy. The the tools on that for journaling alone and be able to send your journal to your therapist, and they even have the ability to link your therapist with your provider so they can help discuss things together to help again uh, synergistically add to your to your treatment so I would say for maintenance uh, that would be my my primary evaluation for these is when you're getting to that place and you're looking for tools to maintain a healthy stasis this is a great way to maintain that is by using these apps so that they're available all right. Well, I think that's a great stopping point. So we're going to spring this on Mora because I did not prep her for personal items, John. So we'll see what comes up. But Mora, so if you haven't listened before, we like to finish every podcast with some personal items because healthcare is all consuming and we like to retain our humanity. So if you want to get put on the spot, you can give a, a personal item, something you're reading, drinking, eating, something fun that's happening in your personal life or we can let John go first and then we can always just copy off of him because that's what I do. I actually recently read two books in one sitting. What? Weekend. I've, I'm apparently not assigning enough studying. <laughs> um, in addition to the study. <laughs> of course, right. Yeah. Um, it's called Twisted Love. It's really good. I think it's more of like a romance girl book, but, you know, maybe you guys would be hey, interested in it. Boys can like yes. romance novels. That's fine. And then I also read Verity by Colleen Hoover, which was like a thriller love story. It was really good. I love it. So I'd like to actually expand on that and talk to me about how you find time or how you prioritize making sure that you're getting time to do some recreational reading as a student when you have lots of studying and lots of demands on your time. Because I think it's really great that you are doing that. And maybe just comment on that of how you're maintaining that balance and ensuring that you're still prioritizing some self-care. Yeah. So I... I can't say during my didactic year of PA school, I was necessarily good at prioritizing or having that school work-life balance type of um, relationship with myself. It definitely came as the year progressed. When I first started, I think I was overwhelmed at first, and then I slowly made an organizer or a planner of everything I had to do, and I would go into the details of writing like this is what I'm going to do at this time and then the next day like if I don't complete it and I would give myself that leeway time so building up to it I knew that I had that comfort space to get everything done that I had to and then as the year went on I think I became a better student in being able to organize my time so my senior year of college wasn't spent necessarily every single day all day in the library and I was able to have that experience with my friends while maintaining that hard school life that didactic year is. Setting the boundaries of, okay, after 9 p.m. I am not going to open my textbook again and I'm going to sit here and read a book that I enjoy, I think was something that I wasn't used to 
coming into didactic year, I was more of, okay, I'm going to study until I understand all the material. And in healthcare, you realize you'll never understand necessarily all the material that is given to you and just trying, giving it your best ability and knowing like you are meant to be there, I think was a big thing for me during didactic year and finding that time to enjoy the things that I like. So I would like to brag that first off, I pulled off a surprise. So we went last weekend, we went to a concert with my brother and his wife and it was a complete surprise. I didn't tell my wife we were going and we just got in the car and drove and she didn't even realize that we were going to Syracuse, which is a three hour drive until we were halfway there. So we went and saw Zach Brown band last week with my brother and his wife. And I'm not a concert person. I'm not a people person, which is, I know, ironic. I keep saying this on the podcast. I've made my life, uh, you know, my career is one of public speaking. And yet in my personal life, I'm really just happy with a book, you know, on the porch with a, a good bourbon. But we went to a concert, not my jam, and it was so much fun. I spent half the day people watching because there was a lot of people that were really drunk. And I found that greatly entertaining. But the concert itself was amazing. And interestingly, it got me thinking. I started looking at concert revenues. And in 2023, concert revenue is supposed to hit $25 billion. Taylor Swift and Beyonce are both crossing the billion-dollar threshold in terms of concert revenue. For the first time ever, there's billion-dollar concerts. And I think it's in line with why we love sports, too, because what else is there in our society where you can get 60,000 people in a room together that all agree on the same thing, that are all happy and, you know, feeling like they're part of something greater. So I think from a sociological standpoint, there is a lot of um, really cool benefits that come with concerts. Uh, You know, preview our next newsletter might be about concerts. But so it was a lot of fun. It was doing something that is maybe outside of my comfort zone. And I'm glad I did it and I enjoyed it. So we're uh, maybe already looking to do another concert later this fall. Yeah. And you guys stopped back uh, on the way back to my house to pick up something. Ah, yes. Is that going to be your personal item? Because that's a great one. Well, I wouldn't say about necessarily the cake. My my wife has started making cakes and uh, she's really good at it. But um, that's not what, I mean, you guys came to pick up a cake, but you also came to pick up the tent. Yes. But no, this isn't my personal item. But on the way back, he stopped at, at the house and we had to set the tent back up because if you remember, if you got to listen to the episode uh, where we talked about how we went camping and my kids, if they didn't pee through stuff, poop through it, get wet because they walked fully clothed into the lake, uh, but throwing up over everything in the tent. So I had to bleach and clean his tent. And <laughs> so he came by, he said, John, listen, we're, I'm secretly taking uh, my wife to this concert. Don't say anything to her because on the way back, I need you to clean that tent and I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> I was like, he's like, I love you, um, but I am not cleaning that up. So, Well, I appreciate that you you gave it a good thorough clean because I, I was going to throw it out otherwise. I definitely was not going to clean up your kid's puke. Yeah. Well, listen, I did a good job with the Dawn dish soap and lack of cleaning supplies that we had. Uh, but my, my personal item uh, is we've been having quite the last week with my kids. Uh, we... We went uh, camping. We went to my cabin. Uh, we went to Seabreeze yesterday. We went to Darien Lake last week. I am so tired, Mike. Um, we were at Seabreeze yesterday, and I wore a swim shirt. I'm not afraid to admit it. Uh, if anybody has never seen me, I am a ginger, and 
the sun hates me. I wore a swim shirt and I wore Teva sandals and I probably made a lot of people avert their eyes because of how embarrassing I looked, but I didn't have the zinc oxide on my nose. But I had a great time and I didn't get sunburned because I reapplied sunblock consistently. So yeah, winning guys. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. So we're White Coats of the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing, even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Otherwise, this is Mike and John and more. Thank you for joining us. That was a lot thank of fun. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad we were able to tackle a very important topic. And I'm really excited to share the resources that you've um, you know, gathered with all this. And we're going to be able to hopefully help some people out there. So until next week, everyone have a wonderful time. Enjoy these last little bits of summer. John, have a good one. Love you guys. Thank you.